Welcome to Chowder and Grits, the podcast for Virginia Tech and ACC Sports. I'm Justin Cochola alongside Tim Hurth. It is Friday, September 24th. We are recapping the unfortunate ending to the West Virginia-Virginia Tech game last week. We're going to look at Richmond, who's coming to town, a nice little uh, in-state uh, matchup in Blacksburg, and we're going to recap all the action around ACC Week 3. We're going to do some lines for Week 4. It should be a fun one, but first off, Tim, what's going on? Just watching the Panthers play a little football. Um, it's nice to go ahead and get the stress over with on Thursday so I can just red zone and veg out uh, come Sunday. Yeah. But, yeah, man, just have that on in the background. So I'm going to be doing double duty during the podcast. But, um, you know, I, I, hopefully it uh, cheers me up because I will say ahead of time, if you're one of those Hokies that's sensitive to criticism of any kind of the coaching staff or the football <laughs> program, uh, earmuffs. Yeah. I wonder how many times we'll say red zone in today's episode because uh, you just said it, <laughs> I just said it. Um, yeah. And, you know, honestly, watching this Panthers game, there was a beautiful little uh, read option run by Sam Darnold um, around the five-yard line that, wow, that would have been something really creative to throw into the playbook. Wouldn't it? Um, one of the three times Virginia Tech found themselves inside the five. But before we jump into that, Thanks for being here. If this is your first time, be sure to leave us a review. If this is your 96th time, I think we're on episode 96, and you haven't left us a review yet, if you oh, wouldn't man. mind, go and hit that uh, hit that five-star button. It's not, episode 96 or 97. I've, I've lost track. But, um, yeah, you know, tell your friends, tell your mom, tell your wife, tell your boyfriend, tell your cousin, tell, tell, tell your neighbor. Be neighborly. Tell them about Chowder and Grits and... Uh, yeah, we're glad you're listening. But as Tim said, we've got, um, you know, we're going to talk about the West Virginia game. And it's a game that Hokie Nation won't forget for a long time. It's a game that, uh, you know, I try not to let football games <laughs> wreck, wreck days in my life. But it's one that I felt for uh, a lot of the week. Cause I just Wait, couldn't stop you're not still about. feeling it? I'm still irritated. Oh, no, no. Well, yeah. It, it's just it's Friday now. I'm yeah. almost Friday. I'm trying, <laughs> trying to turn the page here. That's it. But it's one that it's going to follow Fuente for the rest of his Hokie career. Rightfully Because so. they're always going to look back on this game and remember that time Virginia Tech blew it in Morgantown. That's how I'm going to remember this game, man. It's a game that I really, truly felt like West Virginia didn't win, but the Hokies did everything they could to lose the game, at least the coaches, one coach in particular. A game in which West Virginia literally rolled out the red carpet. Oh, they yeah. said, come on, come on in, Virginia Tech. We want a game. And they let Virginia Tech hang around. But the offensive coordinator, Brad Cornelson, said you know what we're good we're gonna pass actually we're gonna run a jet sweep to the short side of the field a game in which brad cornelson showed on full display to anyone that was watching or had eyes how incapable he is of being an offensive coordinator if there were an snl skit on brad cornelson it would be based off of the will ferrell more cowbell act but instead of cowbell we'd be inundated with jet sweeps. 
There have been plenty, Tim, of instances over the first five seasons where Brad Cornelson and this offensive error that we're in, where it just doesn't look like it's working. But I literally, at one point in this game, had the closest to having a mental breakdown from a football standpoint I have ever had. And I just, I just lost my mind. It's, it's incomprehensible as to what we're watching. The team is moving the football. They get inside the 10, and it's, it's I don't know what it is. I don't even know how to explain it. The offense completely changes. The offensive coordinator is not prepared for the situation. He doesn't have the offensive unit prepared. I just, I cannot pinpoint, maybe outside of the Liberty game, a worse just overall coaching effort than what I saw out of Brad Cornelson on Saturday against West Virginia. Well, I got to stop you there because this is far and away worse than Liberty just because of the sheer amount of times I was yelling at the football screen um, or the TV screen during a football game. The amount of poor decisions made on the play calling front was astounding to me. And this wasn't just from a lot of my corn complaints in the past have come from game flow, switching up the game plan, being too conservative. Although I am highly critical of a lot of play calls. This was ineptitude of a high degree. And I really can't say enough about how bad it was. And it was just a shame because, as you said, West Virginia tried to hand us the football game. I mean, this was a, this was a game, the football game that if West Virginia hadn't we you know, got a rivalry trophy at the end of the game, they probably would be sitting there kind of upset about how poorly their coaches coached. Because you want to talk about a team that really est the bed. Um, you notice I'm, I'm editing that. Uh, wow. Trying try to keep uh, it PG. Clean of um, yeah. Just insanely poor coaching from West Virginia. And we responded with somehow even worse coaching. And we'll get into Brad Cornelson specifically. I don't know if you want to break down some of the things that irritated you first. But I will say one of my biggest irritations with Brad Cornelson and let this whole criticism that we're about to levy lay at the feet of Justin Fuente. Noted quarterback whisperer. Noted water bottle crinkler. Who has allowed this to happen for four years. Five years. I mean, everything's been trending down since Gerard Evans snapped on the chin strap. He's allowed Cornelson to come out here week in and week out. And really make elementary mistakes and poor decisions and play calling and schemes and alignments for four years now. And I'm saying four years because that's when it's been bad, in my opinion. So the thing I want to start off with corn first is the resume. If you looked at what you see on the TV, you would say, wow, this guy's not qualified to be a power five offensive coordinator. And you would be right. But let's check the resume. Because our eyes can deceive us at times. His only offensive coordinating experience in Division I college football, I should say uh, FBS college football, was one year with Memphis as the co-offensive coordinator. The co-offensive coordinator, 2015. 
Justin, you may ask, well, then where does his offensive coordinator experience come from? Oh, you're right. The only offensive coordinating experience that he has, or at least the most recent, um, and literally his first gig, and only gig before Memphis, calling plays, was at Northeastern State in Tahlequah, Oklahoma. Mm. That's it. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed Oklahoma on that one. Why in... (laughs) Why in God's name did he just walk into our football program as the offensive coordinator and the position coach of the most important position on the football field for noted quarterback whisperer Justin Puente? What qualified him to take that role? Because I'm starting to ask questions. Because what I see looks like at a guy who's in over his head. And we can go into alignments, and I know we will. We'll talk about the plays that frustrated us and what's irritating. We'll go into all that. But Justin... Gerard Evans. Gerard Evans was a once-in-a-ten, 20-year talent. He mm-hmm. was one of the best college football quarterbacks, at least for the short season we had him, that, that we may see in a long, long, long time. You talk about a guy that's perfectly suited to covering up a lot of issues on a football team. That would be Gerard Evans. He's a yeah. one-man wrecking machine of a college but- quarterback. He Great was arm. also on a team that was loaded yeah, with loaded talent at the skill positions from the loaded. Right. Loaded and and that, that's talent. another criticism of Fuente and I, there. I, is, listen, I'm not taking anything away from Evans either. I just want to point that out. You, you throw Gerard Evans, a quarterback of his caliber, into that mix of talent that came in. And listen, I'm not saying like things were great in the last few years of the Beamer era. I'm just saying the stable was full. It was chopped. It needed a it it needed a um, a caddy to basically control the horse, and the horse is the offense. And Gerard Evans was the caddy, and he was right. a great caddy. Perfectly and it's suited like, for a college offense, especially the the spread offense. Gerard Evans masked a lot of issues. The reason I'm saying this is because I'm so sick and tired of hearing about record-breaking offense as if in the modern era of college football breaking offensive records at Virginia Tech was any sort of feat with Gerard Evans at quarterback in that stocked skill position group it means absolutely nothing hell it may mean less than nothing you could have had Airbud with a headset calling plays by picking ping pong balls out of one of those lottery number uh situations that they have on the tv and going with whatever ping pong ball his muzzle touched first Airbud, breast and power i assume bet you didn't think you were going to get an Airbud reference today i had forgotten about Airbud, but thanks what for i'm saying in. is it would have been hard to derail that offense it would have been hard and yeah they broke records but they broke offensive records at virginia tech now right, I, which, not you know. not besmirching virginia tech's football history if you're breaking defensive records you got my attention yeah you break an offensive records in uh the 2010s I- i'm not surprised a lot of teams were breaking offensive records in that time period it- it's the evolution of the sport so when you say yeah. that i have no response for you because if, it, if you're like not comparing able... joe montana's numbers to patrick mahomes right. you're not going to be very impressed with what you see from joe montana Right, exactly. So please, it just doesn't convert. 
Stop bringing up that season as if it's any relevance to judging the quality of the offensive coordinator. And if you're sitting there watching this game, watching games from the past four years where you and I have been accused of being overly negative about the play calling on this podcast, no, we're just calling it like we see it. And what's in front of us on a week-in, week-out basis is flat-out not good enough at this level. It hasn't been good enough for years, and the trend is miserable. Well, I mean, my biggest issue with it is, I mean, it costs Virginia Tech the football game. Many football games. And not just, I mean, if but if we're looking at this season, if we want to look at this season under a microscope, Virginia Tech was the better football team on Saturday. For sure. They got off to a slow start. Okay, They dug themselves a 14-point hole. The defense wasn't playing very well. But they got out of that. And whether it was a mix of West Virginia going into a conservative mode in the second half, specifically that fourth quarter, you know, the Virginia Tech defense started creating turnovers, and that's what really got them back into the game. And, you know, I'm not going to put how the first half uh, red zone series ended on Cornelson. I'll let that one slide because we had the completed touchdown pass that turned into incomplete, that turned into... You know, we can't tell if he caught the ball or not because of the camera angle. And then, you know, it looked like we had Tavion Robinson wide open, whether or not he was in the wrong position or Burmeister made a terrible pass. I don't know. And then you've got the John Parker Romo missed 24-yard field goal. Horrible sequence of events. And to potentially either go into halftime down what was it, 24-7 instead of 24-10 or 24-14? I mean, that's that's a big that's a big difference. Huge um, swing. And I don't remember if they had 24 or 27 at that point. But either way, you know, that was more execution on the offense. And whether or not it was a touchdown or not, we're, we'll never know because we couldn't tell. We just couldn't see from the camera angle. I hate that word, execution. I, I hate it. I'm well, so tired I, I of mean, Fuente. But, but no, I, no, I know no. what you meant. But there, I just but there get, it really was. I, it was, I mean, but I want to get this out of here. And say, okay, there was literally three chances right there to get points, and they didn't do it. They got zero. Right. But the, the, the way execution works in the world of Justin Fuente is a way to right. avoid actual analysis or any criticism yep. uh, or any accountability, period, of right. his coaching staff. And I'm tired of it. It's like so, the fire marshal showing up to a burnt down house, being asked why the house was burnt down. And he says, well, because of the fire. Well, what about the fire? What, what about the whole situation led to this? Well, you know how fire works, right? It, it just burns down the house. He doesn't get to the root of the issue. He doesn't get right. to the grease fire in the kitchen that started the fire. He, he just lumps it under execution as if it means anything. It doesn't mean anything. What is execution? Let's break that down. Execution is two parts in my mind. Execution is part play calling, coaching, if you want to lump that together, and part ability from the players. The reasons you don't execute is because A, you're not talented enough, or B, you're not coaching well enough. And so when I hear execution lobbed out at the end of a game, it makes me want to put my fist through a wall. Right. I'm tired of hearing the word, and I know that's not how you meant it, but that's how right. he meant it. means it. It's a cop-out for him. 
It's a way to avoid answering hard questions or absolving any sort of accountability. And he's getting better at the accountability bit. There's been bits and pieces of it this year where he's alluded to the fact that they're not getting the job done. But I feel truly bad for the players because I think they're talented enough. I think they're a talented football team. What's what's mm-hmm. holding them back in yep. the execution is the play calling and the coaching. And I'm sorry, you can't just throw out execution and expect that blanket statement to be ate up at this point when you're in year six and this is the best you felt about the passing game and we're scared to throw the ball past the sticks. We're scared right. to go vertical. We're scared to do anything that is going to allow these players to shine. And we continually get our game plans wrong on offense. That's fine. Whatever. We seem to start, you know, when we go down two touchdowns, it's like, oh, wow, the offense actually opens up. I'd love to start with that mentality from the start of a game. Right. Let's stop the quick outs. Let's stop the hitches. And let's start playing football and going up and down the field, or at least attempting to. Now, if talent is the problem, so be it. Okay? But I'm getting really tired of the phrase execution because that's just a cop-out. That's all that is. It is a cop-out. The reason we're not executing is because we're not putting our players in the best position for success. And that lies solely at the feet of Justin Fuente and, and our offensive coordinator from Northeast Oklahoma. Yeah. Okay. But it was, it was execution at the end of the first half. For sure. I mean, it was, that was, I just wanted to, I just wanted to get that out there because it's been irritating the heck out of me to hear execution at the end of every disappointing game because it's not execution. But I mean, even if John Parker Romo kicks a 24 yard field goal, who knows how the second half ends up. And I mean, he probably misses another one, right? Cause he doesn't look like he can kick the football through the uprights consistently. Right. His first kick against North Carolina, he kicks a 48 yarder and then he misses a 31 yarder later in the game. He missed a 24 yarder against West Virginia. Dude, you got to kick it through the upright. I know yep. you know that, but you got to freaking do it. You cannot miss 24-yard field goals. I don't care who you are. If you are in a football uniform on a Power 5 football team, you cannot miss a 24-yarder. You can't. It can't happen. Okay? What, just for, whether for, or not uh, that would have played into how the game ended or not, because the rest of the red zone execution from that point forward was absolute garbage. Who knows? But you've got to be able to at least put something on the board when you are that close to the end zone. And that is what just, it started to set me off. I could not shake the end of the first half for the rest of the game. Okay? And you're watching it. So they get three trips total inside the five-yard line and they got zero points how does that happen zero well i'll tell you i'll tell you how it happens obviously i I had two real big issues that have killed me zero points on these play on the play calls when you talk about the fourth down conversions attempted conversions and, and one of them may have been on third where we ran braxton burmeister up the middle my big issue there was on our alignment. You, you do it out of the shotgun, fine. If you're going to run the quarterback out of the shotgun, you better do it in four wide and spread the defense out. But what do we do? I don't know what to call the formation, but essentially it looked like shotgun tight. You only had one wide out, and you had two guys offset from the line in the H-back position. What does that cause, Justin? 
lining up in that formation, how does a defense respond to that alignment? Well, they bunch up the middle of the field just like you would expect them to. What is probably the worst play you could call in that scenario? That would be running into the logjam with a quarterback. And we did it once. And when we lined up, I knew it was coming. Somehow, I have watched enough Cornelson to know what is happening before it actually happens. And that's a bad thing because if I'm picking up on it, Lord knows everybody out there in ACC country that we're going to be playing knows that. Yet. All you got to do is watch like, you know, one or two games and it's the same play calling every single week. We did it twice. We ran that same play twice on huge, huge conversions. We shouldn't have ran it once. If you are so married to that quarterback run, that quarterback power, if you will, that you want, you just have to run it, spread the field. Give them a pass look. And then do it. Spread yeah, the and, field. And like, listen, spread the, the offensive defense. line didn't play well. No, okay, no so they didn't. That was, that was part of it. They gave up six sacks. The team only had 106 yards rushing. That's not good enough. Okay, and no. listen, the West Virginia defense is solid. They were the best defense of the Big 12 last year, which, is, you know, that doesn't sound like it's saying much, but they had a pretty good defense, okay? And they have a good defense this year. So I'm not taking anything away from the West Virginia defense, but, I mean, I, I can I can just pinpoint time after time after time. I mean, let's let's go through let's go through the series to end the game, Tim. Sure. Oh, so we it's, have it's to 27 do that. to 7. Okay, yeah. late in the third quarter, there's under two minutes left. Virginia Tech's still down big. Okay, you're still down 20 points. That's when Burmeister converts to third and 24. Okay, great run. You know, could have been one of the plays of the year had they won the game. Okay, two plays later, Blackshear takes it in the end zone for a touchdown. Hokies have life. Defense had finally started to settle into the game. You know, they're playing really good. You're still thinking, man, I really wish they had at least a field goal before the half, but, you know, they're still within striking distance. Next series, the defense forces a fumble. They recover, and the offense starts on the right side of the 50. Holston takes a carry to the 8. Okay, and this is where I lost my mind. Right here. Okay. The series of plays was throw out of bounds, whatever the play call was. Handoff out of the shotgun, two yards. Jet sweep to the short side of the field. Where, if you're watching it, Burmeister, as he pulls back and takes it in, he has a wide open lane to the touchdown. There's basically two guys he has to beat that were frozen that he most definitely could have beaten. And so you watch that play and you're like, okay, so was this poor, I'm going to say it, Tim, execution on behalf of the quarterback? Or was this the play call? If you listen to Fuente's interviews throughout the week, he doesn't fault decision-making on the read options for Burmeister. It's, so that it's to, me tells to, me. Me, that to me tells me it was a designed handoff. You took the control out of the quarterback's hands in that situation to yep. read the defense I and agree. make a play. I agree. It had he to admitted. have been a called play. 
because no one in their right mind who's ever practiced the read option would have given the ball to the running back in that scenario. The defense was on its heels. He could have almost walked in with the with the crashing that occurred on the running back. He could have walked in. The way Fuente acted when questioned about that specifically, I can't remember the exact words, but it was as if he didn't recall a scenario in which there was a clear misread. And that, to me, baffles. It baffles, and it doesn't check out. It it's makes like, me honestly, question what you see when like you look that, at the football field. If you've got any play like that, if you, if you want to call a jet sweep type of play, and you've got a quarterback like a Braxton Burmeister, why is it always not an option? should always be an option. I mean, that's the whole point of designing an offense with those looks. I mean, the whole idea there is to have the option. That is the spread offense in a nutshell. I mean, the spread offense is predicated on the read option. If you're going to turn that into a no-read scenario, you're, you're crippling the entire play as it's designed. It, it, it then becomes a yeah. poor running play. If there's no hesitation from the defense or there's no threat of the quarterback taking that, it becomes a bad run play because it is you, not an efficiently you, designed run. You automatically set the play up for limited success when you run into the short side of the field. And then, of course, you know, Fuente claims and the weekly press conference that, you know, most of their yards have been to the short side of the field over the, you know, history of the Fuente era and don't give me that crap. Um, in Blacksburg, but claiming offensive line issues at right tackle is where they were really running into to issues and why they needed to run more laterally than vertically. He also claimed that you couldn't throw a fade from seven yards out. Yeah, which we've seen before, right? I've the seen it. play had a great little uh, <laughs> little sequence of photos to uh, Trey Turner against UVA in, what was that, last season? Season, I think a season yeah. before. Yeah, whatever it was. Beautiful fade route. Chris Cunningham called out a play. Whatever he called it, wide trips or something, where the tight end just leaks out and runs into the end zone untouched. Didn't didn't call that play one time. What has changed since Chris Cunningham has been on the offensive coaching staff at Virginia Tech? Nothing. <laughs> the same guys. The same guys are there calling plays. So those four plays to throw out of bounds, two handoffs up the middle out of the shotgun formation, the jet sweep to the short side of the field. I honestly, I came away with that first off wanting to run through a wall to take my anger out on something, okay? It was well, the worst set of downs in the Fuente-Cornelson era that I have, I felt, given that situation, given the score, given the time of the game that I had witnessed and something inside of my football soul, I'm telling you, it just internally combusted. Well, I lost these my mind. Quietly, of course, because sure, I had sleeping children kids. in the house and my wife yeah. would have, you know, murdered me. And then I would have had You're other issues. A man of hand. class. But so, right there, I'm telling you, that was that was it. I was like, I don't care what Cordelson does from this point on. I don't care what Fuente says. And I I know nothing's gonna change. It's not gonna change. But Here's my here's my issue. I can't I can't go back. Here's my main issue. There are multiple things wrong with that play call, and they're so elementary that I can't believe 
that somehow ended up out of the entire playbook as the play that Cornelson decided to drum up at that down and distance. Your first problem is that's the wrong down and distance to run a damn jet sweep. Your second problem is you ran it to the short side. I don't care where you think most of your yards come from on the jet sweep, and it wasn't a jet sweep technically, I don't think, but it sure looked it. Whatever you want to call it. Running sweeps into the short side is a fool's errand to begin with. I don't give a damn what your stats say. But running a sweep with more than one or two yards to go in that scenario makes my head want to explode. Makes my head want to explode. Got to get six yards, essentially. And that was the play call to get you six yards. Just give the damn players a chance, man. I mean, give the poor kids a chance. Those, those are, uh, we have a team full of fighters who I am proud as hell that they wear our maroon and orange on a weekly basis. They make me proud to see them fight in the face of adversity, in the face of a game that isn't going your way, and to see the effort. Jalen Holston, man. I mean, just putting the team on his back. Braxton Burmeister, fighting. This game means so much to them that the elementary coaching errors and the flat-out ineptitude that we see on that side of the ball, not just today, for four years, for five years that we've seen this, it hurts, and they deserve better. They deserve better. So I've got a question for you, Tim. Remember that really weird December press conference we had with Whit Babcock and Fuente was talking about making a concerted effort to make guys like Brad Cornelson more available. <laughs> well, where the F-bomb is he? Okay? Because if you're not going to make him available this week, you're never making him available. I want to hear it from him. I want to watch him have to answer these questions. And he can talk about how, oh, I don't even... I don't even pay attention. I don't even know. Brad, you're a liability on the football field. Can you explain why you can call 12 plays inside the 8-yard line and you can't get any points on the board? Do you mind uh, explaining that to me? Hold on. Let's actually take the first half out of it. Let's just focus on the second half, Brad. What are you doing? What's going through your mind? How are you coming up with this place? Are you practicing this situation on a weekly basis? Do you How have you a dartboard with plays on them that you throw a dart at in specific scenarios to go with a random play call? Because that's what it looks like. And this speaks to my overall issue. When you talk about Fuente, there seems to be a piece of him that just doesn't freaking get it. His response to the Hokie fan base was essentially you guys just don't know football. Yeah. The problem, your understand. problem with Cornelson is that you haven't heard him tell knock knock jokes. You're not in the locker room. Right. You don't but watch, you know what's going to fix it, Justin? We're going to give him more FaceTime. And you're yeah. going to see the guy's got a killer smile underneath that goatee. And that's going to change your entire opinion. Listen, of his inability to coach college football. To calm down. 
Okay. And none of none of this is getting into the lack of progression that quarterbacks have made under Brad Cornelson's tutelage for five years. We've seen quarterbacks either stagnate or regress. The quarterback position is a revolving door. Honestly, yeah, God, we, we need to put seen, a, tar- we we need to put a, a turnstile behind the center just to keep track of how many guys we've run out over the past you know, five years. And this is yeah. all incriminating, and it should be something that would be held against the position coach at this point, at this juncture, six years down the damn road. But has any of that criticism fallen at the feet of Rad Cornelson from the folks internally? I don't know exactly, but from the outside looking in, it sure doesn't seem it, Justin. Well, because Quinte said the problem was you guys just don't know him. <laughs> so I, I didn't mention two of my favorite things about that drive. One, there was just kind of a sheer lack of urgency. The drive started with 11 minutes and 12 seconds on the clock. It ended with five minutes and 54 seconds. It, isn't there always a severe lack of urgency on the offensive side of the football? So they're worried about draining the clock, but they can't score. So right. Tech is still down 13 points. So what happens next, Tim? Okay, I'm sorry to have to relive this, but it's telling the story here. The defense bails them out again. Quick three and out. They get into a third and 17 situation on offense on the next series. And Burmeister finds Holston, who's wide open, okay, walks in for a 29-yard touchdown. So that's a third and 24 conversion that leads to a touchdown. And then a third and 17 conversion that goes for a touchdown, okay? The Hokies are now down by seven. West Virginia's let them hang around. Here Here they are. They're hanging. Next drive, false start on third and five. You've got Garrett Green in the game. You know they're going to run, which, you know, I thought they could have defended him a little better when he came in. But they get the third and five. There's a false start. Daigie comes back into the game, goes under pressure, throws a pick to Waller, takes it inside the 20. There's two minutes and 11 seconds left on the clock. They have just over two minutes to score a touchdown and win the game. And after two carries for 14 yards on the first two plays of the drive, it gets them down to the West Virginia three-yard line. (laughs) The Hokies are first in goal from the three. The three. Did I mention, Tim, that the ball was at the three? Okay. First in goal. So what do they do? First and second down, they run straight up the middle. Nothing. Now, again, Fuente says in his presser on Monday, the reason they were running laterally at times and not up the middle was because they couldn't get push. Obviously, Silas Danzi goes down at the right tackle position and comes Terrell Smith. Terrell Smith, known more for his pass blocking, struggled with some false start penalties throughout the game, not much of a run blocker. Well, let me see. Terrell Smith plays on the right end of the offensive line. So what does running laterally do for you? Okay, I'm a little confused about that. Not a whole lot. So he says historically most of their yards, as we've mentioned, short side of the field, you know, similar play to where we saw James Mitchell get hurt. 
But the first two plays, we run up the middle. Okay. So we're running up the middle, but we get all our yards on the short side of the field. Okay. Third and goal. Out of a timeout. And I specifically want to bring up out of a timeout because they had extra time to design this one. <laughs> BP. BB. BP. Not the gas station, but BB. He rolls out to the right. Turns around, avoids his sack. It's one of those plays where he runs like 15 yards behind, you know, where you want him to be. Finds Trey Turner. It's out of bounds. Again, the ball's on the three. And that's the play call. Fourth and goal. Another rollout. This time to the short side. Nothing there. Burmeister's under pressure. Throws across his body. The guy's not even in the end zone. He's on like the one and a half yard line. Ball's incomplete. The game is over. It's over. So, earlier in the game, I lost it. At this point, I was just, I had just succumbed to the incompetence of Brad Cornelson. You go two runs up the middle, two rollouts with absolutely nothing working. Four of the more basic play calls you could ever see in that situation with a game on the line. Vanilla. And it's it's just it's it's incomprehensible, Tim. I I don't I can't explain it. We all saw it happen. You add in some of the comments coming out of Fuente over the last few days, and it it just doesn't match up. It doesn't add up. He's making excuses. It's all coach speak. We've seen it time and time again. Oh, you can't call a fade seven yards out. Yeah, you can. It happened. Get out of here. You've thrown a fade from twenty yards out before. What what is that rule? I've never Quincy heard Patterson. of that rule. What are, Quincy what are, Patterson, you remember how the do you pull six that, overtime how, game against North Carolina at home? Quincy Patterson was at the 20, 18, whatever, throws a beautiful fade to Damon Hazleton, left corner of the end zone, touchdown. And that's the guy who transferred because couldn't pass. And you called the fade for him, and it worked in a very volatile situation in overtime. But you take the two drives that got to the five in the fourth quarter. How can you look the fan base in the face and honestly say that you feel comfortable with Cornelson calling plays? You can't. It, and He's done it nothing, Tim. He's done how nothing. Are, how are we sitting here in year six after the mountain of evidence we have that suggests Cornelson is in way over his head? and incapable of calling consistently good offense. His situational play calling is as bad as I've ever seen. His game plans leave a lot to be desired. He has no he has no semblance of an idea how to coach within the game flow of a game, when to put on the gas, when to put on the brakes. And we're sitting here in year six, and nobody has any answers. And it blows my mind that the answer in the offseason was he's actually good. You guys don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. Let's run him on the late-night talk show circus, circuit and, and see how you guys like it. But that. not during the season when we need no. to hold him accountable because we well, don't no, want to hear would, from him then. That would We're not about accountability here at Virginia no. Tech. Now, if you tell me one more time that nobody works harder than Brad Cornelson, I'm going to go me a ahead break. and bomb. Oh, yeah. or how about the minutia? 
maybe maybe that's a problem. Maybe he buries himself too much in the minutia that he misses the forest for the trees. Minutia. Ma- minutia. I mean, he's so good at minutia. That was a good one. I, good I work, just, Justin. Ugh, good work. Thank you. Ugh, I just, I, the Fuente quotes, they always irritate me. He has a tendency to say the wrong things at the wrong time or just skirt any accountability or say things that are just so demonstrably false that it blows my mind. But the caping for Brad Cornelson, I will never, ever, ever understand. But please hear this. In all of this Cornelson criticism, it is Fuente who bears the responsibility to get the right people on the right seats of the bus for this football program. And he's shown time and time again that he's incapable of that. I'm not sure what he's capable of. I will say he, the, t- the players fight for him. And that's a, that's a good green check in his column. But everything else, we seem to get in our own way better than any organization that I've ever seen. From gaffes, from a PR standpoint, from saying the wrong things, to making silly, silly uh, personnel decisions, to recruiting blunders, to overall strategy problems. This is just one of the other things you can lay at the feet, but let it be known, the gauntlet needs to be laid at at Fuente's feet here. While this is a a podcast laden with criticism for Cornelson, what this really is is criticism of Justin Fuente because clearly Brad Cornelson is doing what Justin Fuente wants or I hope he wouldn't have a job. So this sputtering offense that we've seen decline every year from a passing standpoint, and let it be known, this is modern college football. Your bread and butter is now the pass game, whether you like it or not, unless you're uh, Army, Navy, or uh, Paul Johnson's Madden franchise. Passing is your bread and butter. And in this era of college football, if you have a downward trend every single year in your passing yardage per game, you've got a mountain of a problem. So yes, Cornelson, no bueno. But Justin Fuente, extra freaking no bueno, man. Yeah, I mean, listen, dude. There's a leak in the boat. Fuente's the captain, and he's choosing to let the, the, the ship go down. He's taking everyone on his staff. He's taking the players because, again, this game is on the coaches. He's taking them all down because he doesn't want to tell his buddy, Brad, that he's a horrible offensive coordinator, and he no longer has that position on the staff. Like, I, I'm now certain... Fuente has no idea how to call plays. That's very clear to me. Because if he did, he would have taken over by now. At least Manny Diaz is going to go down in flames, okay? He said, you know what? I'm going to fire my off defensive coordinator, and I'm going to come in, I'm going to call the defensive plays. Well, you know what? Their defense blows, okay? <laughs> Manny Diaz is going to be canned. He's going to be fired. Whether that's at the end of the season or if that's now. But you know what? He's going out like Al Pacino at the end of Scarface. Yep. And he is, <laughs> he is absolutely going off. He's doing just what blitzed he out of his mind and squeezing the trigger, man. out of his mind. 
squeezing the trigger. He's got the turnover chain around his neck, and <laughs> he cannot see straight. No. All he is trying to do is save his job doing what he thinks he's doing best. And I can at least respect that. Manny, listen, we realize you're not a very good football coach at the Power 5 level. That's okay. That's okay, Manny. You can go back to Temple or wherever it was that Miami bought the buyout for you, which was Temple. Go there. Be a good coach there. Fuente and Cornelson, go to UCF. I'm sure you could do fine there. Power 5 level, you got to make these hard decisions. He can't make them. The hardest decision he had to make in his time as head coach here at Virginia Tech, what was it? It was firing Galen Ware, the co-defensive coordinator, because he had the extramarital affair on the recruiting trail, and he had no choice but to fire him. So that was easy. I thought it was the turkey bacon. The turkey bacon. I mean, a close second, okay? (laughs) So your toughest decision as a head coach when it comes to staffing was to fire the guy who basically embarrassed you because of his extramarital affair and he you know the wife's husband called him out and blew blew up on twitter offensively nothing has changed you're not the quarterback whisperer you had andy dalton great okay Andy Dalton's a good quarterback. Don't know how much that was you, Fonte. You had Paxton Lynch. Okay, great. Sucked in the NFL. Awful. Not even on a roster anymore. Doesn't mean he wasn't good in college. He was good in college. Gerard Evans, great in college. Didn't make it in the NFL. Wasn't drafted. Is what it is. Not every college quarterback is going to make it in the NFL. But what are we hanging our hat on here? Fuente is supposed to be the offensive guy. Where is the freaking offense? Where's it at? Because I haven't seen an offense that's worthy of an offensive-focused head coach since 2016, and those weren't even his guys outside of the quarterback he plucked out of JUCO. Who was already the number one JUCO player in the country. So that's where I'm at. I still think this is a solid football team. I'm not ready to I call think so a too. good football team. I think the coaching staff has gotten in the way of what could have been a perfect November, uh, September had they, you know, as long as they take care of business against Richmond. But you don't want your coaches to be the reason you're losing football games. Okay? I don't know when that, that, that's rare. That's rare, and it, it's happened multiple times now in the Fuente era. Um, so it was disappointing. I mean, I'll, I'll just I'll never <laughs> look back on this game and have good good feelings about it because I can I can look back and the positive I can take is, you know what, defensively they really settled down. Some Big Twelve offense, you know, had some playmakers out there, and the defense put them in position to win the game in the second half. Didn't in the sure first did. half, but did in the second half. Offensively, I mean, I may as well have been looking at a file cabinet and staring at a bunch of files because that's what it looked like. Where's Connor Blumrick? You know, the guy we saw running wild. How about we put him in at least once in the entire 
freaking game? You're in the red zone, inside the five, three times. And you've got that Mustang sitting over there on the sidelines, and you're just like, you know what? No. You got to let that horse run. You stay in the trailer. (laughs) Run him to the short side of the field. See what happens. Don't don't give him any ideas. I mean, Cornelson like, is what just are you doing. I'm so tired waiting. of hearing about all these athletes and all these quote unquote wrinkles they have ready for the offense. I I keep seeing the same guys. I keep seeing the same play calls. Where where are these freaking wrinkles? I don't see any wrinkles. There are no wrinkles. Are there are no wrinkles? Are you serious? that's the funniest thing to me about people clamoring for us to quote-unquote open up the playbook on Twitter. This is, the playbook's wide open. That's the problem. Yeah, yeah. This is the playbook. There's 10 10 plays on offense. Our playbook is 10 pages long, written in about three different shades of Crayola crayon. This is what we got. The coach and remember the Titans had a more evolved offense than we do. I mean, hell, he ran like three plays. But the, the, he had the damn advantage because those were three damn good plays. We run about 20 mediocre to bad plays. And we do them consistently in the wrong scenarios, in the wrong situations, and we string them together with such failing, miserable lack of consistency that it blows my mind. The only time I see consistency on this offense is when we string together about five three and outs back to back to back to back. That's the only thing offensively we do consistently is is completely drop the ball when it comes to extending drives. And we cluster them together. So at least we're consistent. But all of this being said, there were positives. And I think you hit on the big one. Justin Hamilton did a great job getting that defense to settle down because they got punched in the mouth. My biggest fear came to fruition which was we wouldn't be ready to play because Fuente's teams have a tendency to show up kind of spaced out on occasion. We saw them sleepwalking in the beginning of the Middle Tennessee State game. They were sleepwalking in this game yet again, failure to prepare for a rivalry game and a team that punched them in the mouth. That was one of my keys to the game was to not come out and do what we did. Don't come out flat. Start fast. That's it. We came out as flat as a pancake. I mean, flatter than a flapjack. To his credit, the defense picked it up and turned it around. And that is the that is the hallmark of good coaching. Which is why I will give credit, a small amount of credit, to Fuente for getting the team fighting and keeping them fighting. Because that was a recipe for a team to be defeated. That game was a literal recipe for defeat. But that team fought till the very end as hard as they could. They were let down by the coaching staff in a monumental failure from the top. But don't let you don't let that take away from what the players did do. And I'm not talking about taking a moral victory out of this. I'm just saying it is a hell of a, of a demoralizing game at times, football. And there were a lot of demoralizing moments in this particular football game. And we saw team that wouldn't quit and I've seen a lot of teams that did quit and there's nothing more soul crushing than watching your team quit and we did not see that on Saturday 
No, I mean, I, I think that was the uh, the crazy part about it is you just kept watching the game and you just kept wondering yourself, how is this football team still in the game? Yeah. They have done, it feels like, everything they can to not be in this game, but they're still here. They're back in the red zone. They're not doing anything in the red zone, but they're back. They're there. So it's like... Yeah, I'll give you that. Uh, it definitely was. I mean, and like I said, like we've just, you know, we're trying to shuffle through the coach speak that was in the offseason. I mean, if we think about the Justin Hamilton quote about, you know, I think our defense has a fighter's chance. Coach speak. This defense is better than a fighter's chance. It's proven that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, this defense is good. The good news for Virginia Tech is they're 1-0 in the ACC. They've beaten probably the best team in the coastal you know so that's going to be beneficial the rest of the coastal outside of virginia looks like just garbage (laughs) you know but you're gonna have that game against Pitt where Pitt's gonna lose to western michigan but then they're gonna beat you the next week because that's what Pitt does that's Pitt football that's the narduzzi way that's the brand it's the coastal things are going to happen um but you know at this point in college football the way that it's set up today is basically if you're not one of five teams these non-conference games are exhibitions you know they don't always mean a whole lot this one did because it's a robbery game first time in morgantown and you know five thousand plus days um would have been a crazy finish to to come out on top there uh, especially with how this game went but uh they didn't and i mean it just it, it lies solely on the back of the uh the offensive coordinator so i think we've beat the drum enough tim let's yep. uh let's move on we're gonna go around the acc we're gonna start with the good first we're gonna talk about the good things louisville wake forest big win for the cardinals against florida state been tough to pinpoint what type of team they'd be this year but a good ucf team at home it was a game all the way through louisville looked competent so that was good yeah and it was a crazy sequence at the end with the pick that louisville threw to ucf then ucf threw an interception that was returned for a touchdown and then Dylan Gabriel broke his clavicle on that play. So a big loss for UCF there at the very end. Big win for Louisville. Malik Cunningham threw 265, 99 yards, three total touchdowns. And, uh, yeah, nice uh, nice little win for the old Cardinals there. Yeah, you know, a shame for Dylan Gabriel. Just want to say that. You hate to see that injury. Um, obviously tough for a quarterback throwing with a broken clavicle. Uh, prospects not looking good as far as uh you know returns and those kind of things so you hate to see it happen him early in the season i will say malik cunningham is his stats aren't eye-popping but when you watch him play the dude is just dynamite man i mean you talk about a quintessential hard to game plan against quarterback that can keep you in any game you play that's malik cunningham and he gets it done in a game the acc really needed really needed and i i I think I might have said Louisville against Florida State. That's this week. So that was UCF. Wake Forest beat Florida State 35-14. So this just shows kind of where the two programs are at. 
very different directions. You know, Wake Forest, obviously, under uh, Dave Clawson. Everybody knows they've, they're they a solid program. Sam Hartman, kind of the unsung hero of the uh, the ACC quarterback-wise. Had oh, 259 no for two touchdowns. Dude's really good. Yeah. Big game this week against UVA. I'm looking forward to that's uh That's tonight, actually. A little Friday night football action. Um, Wake's D shut out Florida State in the second half. So... Really the uh, interesting part about Florida State has been the quarterback play. Uh, whoever has started seems to just suck. I mean, for lack of a better descriptor, you know, Mackenzie Milton, he went for 119 yards, two interceptions. Florida State only had 91 yards on the ground compared to Wake's 225. So Wake Forest, 3-0, Florida State, 0-3. There doesn't seem to be a light at the end of the tunnel for Florida State, so I'm I'm concerned for them right now. I don't see a whole lot of wins on their schedule, if any. No, it's it's tough, and especially when you can't figure out the quarterback position or get consistent play there, um, that's a recipe for disaster in this day and age. Uh, you know, on on the flip side of it, Clawson just does what Clawson does. Uh, gets a bunch of guys that know his system and know how to command it. And I think Sam Hartman just a perfect quarterback for that system when you talk about grasp and control of the offense. And I really think the most underrated quarterback in the ACC. Uh, and then Christian Beal Smith, almost 100 yards. I think he ended up with 95 or 96. Um, but just a stud running back. is so well suited to eat up big plays in the ground game on a team that you know is going to come out and run a whole lot with good balance in the passing game. Wake Forest definitely still, I think, underrated. I don't think enough people are paying attention to them. I'm not saying they're, you know, a fantastic team, but as far as the ACC goes, uh, they're going to be right up near the top at the end of the season. UNC puts up 59 against UVA in a uh, 20-point win. Wild first half. UNC got up 21-7, then UVA outscored North Carolina 21-3 in the second quarter, had the halftime lead. But UNC outscores UVA 35-11 in the second half. Sam Howell bringing his rushing shoes to the stadium the last two weeks. Back-to-back 100-yard rushing efforts. Ty Chandler had a big day as well. 20 carries for 198 yards, two touchdowns. Howell had over 300 yards passing, five touchdowns through the air. Brennan Armstrong continues to put up big numbers, 554 yards, four touchdowns. But this is, again, a probably the most one-dimensional UVA offense we've seen. 22 carries for 24 yards rushing. Team. Team stat. Mike Collins led the team in carries with four. You're just not going to win that way. I mean, it's no wonder Armstrong's numbers are so huge. They can't run the football. So all they do is throw. Neither of these defenses looked very good. I mean, if you were watching this game, you're like, I mean, do do they have defensive players? So, UNC settled down a little bit there in the second half, but I do have questions about the defense for both teams. It's really tough to really understand what kind of team UVA is right now. Because until this week, they hadn't really played like a solid, solid team. Um, But UNC gets the win. It was a must win for them. South sold us rivalry as we hear a hundred times throughout this game. But question marks for both teams to see kind of how they'll hold up. 
Yeah, and I stare longingly out of a rainy window, looking at UVA just sling the rock around the field with such ease. If only at that, if it were that easy in Blacksburg. Um, you know, I, I guess one way to open up the passing game if you're Sam Howell is to continue to rush for 100 yards, uh, bringing that real dual threat action to the game. But, you know, he's looked a lot better, obviously, since playing Virginia Tech. And um, I, th- I think that's twofold. I think Virginia Tech's uh, defensive backs obviously did a great job. Defensive coordinator did a great job, but Sam Howell certainly settling in, and Josh Downs with an absolute monster game, eight for 203 and two touchdowns. So he's really uh, taking the reins as that playmaker they needed out wide, as, as everybody sort of expected he would. Um, but, yeah, a- another good game, uh, exciting. I guess if you like points, uh, certainly hope you took the over in that one if you were betting. Um, and North Carolina, yeah, looking more like the North Carolina we expected to see, maybe outside of the uh, poorest defense at the moment. Duke takes down Northwestern 30 to 23. They were up 30 to 7 at halftime and then they didn't score again, but just enough to hold on led by Matthias Durant. Uh, NC State, Syracuse, they take care of their FCS opponents. Boston College gets the win over a bad Temple team 28-3. Boston College had 35 yards passing in that <laughs> game. So Man. Uh, interesting, interesting there. Uh, the ugly uh, it just sucks to be the U, man. I mean, they look terrible. Manny Diaz, is he going to be the Clay Helton of the East Coast? I don't know. Is he going to get canned? Uh, absolutely dominated by Michigan State. Outscored 28-10 in the second half. Lost 38-17. Kenneth Walker getting some uh, getting some Heisman hype. 27 carries for 172 yards. Peyton Thorne threw four touchdowns. Derek King at 388 for two scores, two picks. Think he has a shoulder injury. He's not playing this week against Central Connecticut, but that's just kind of a let's give him a little bit of a extra rest. We can win without him. But Miami's only rushed for 52 yards in this game. Defensively, they look bad. They've been bad. Offensively, they look one-dimensional. I just you know, there's issues down there. And the hot seat, it's uh, it's a category five right now. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uncomfortable if you're Manny Diaz. You're sweating out all of that gel that you've applied to your hair in the morning. Um, yeah, Manny doing everything he can right now to plug as many holes as he can on a sinking ship, but it is looking grim. Something just seems broken uh, with that team from top to bottom. And, uh, yeah, it, it certainly wasn't a pretty game. Uh, you know, I don't know if you saw it on Twitter, but there was a strange play on a long Miss- Michigan State completion where – the defensive back on Miami was breaking down to tackle the man with the ball, and then at the last second veered right and tackled a blocker to the side of the play, which was one of the strangest things I've ever seen. If you've not seen uh, the clip on Twitter, search for that uh, m- maybe Miami missed tackle in Twitter and see if you can pull up that gif because it's uh, it's shocking. Pitt. The going to I- Neyland Stadium a week ago. They take down the balls. Then they go home and they lose to Western Michigan. Yeah. Three turnovers in the game, one for eight on third downs. Western Michigan held the ball for 40 minutes. Kenny Pickett had 382 yards passing and six touchdowns in 20 minutes of play. Monster game. And lost. <laughs> monster game yeah how often do you read that stat line outside of any game texas tech has played in the last 20 years yeah and see that from a quarterback and 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 see them on the losing side it's a it's a very uva feel 
very one-dimensional, can't run the football. Defense doesn't appear to be good. We thought the pit defense was going to be better than this, but it's not. Um, but, yeah, so tough win there. The ugly Clemson. Um, hello? Yeah. 14 points against Georgia Tech? Yeah. Okay. It's time to hit the panic button on the Clemson offense. I'm sorry. You're a 28-and-a-half-point favorite against Georgia Tech at home, and you literally have to stop them on fourth and goal to prevent them from tying the football game on you? Yeah. I mean, what is going on with that offense? It Still just developing. looks disjointed. It's a still-developing Georgia Tech team. And you can only put up 14 points on them? Unbelievable. The only good thing that they have going for them right now is the defense. The defense still has not given up a touchdown this year. But without that defense, I mean, I don't know where they'd be. And honestly, like at this point, I don't care if Clemson wins every game from here on out. They're not a playoff team. Unless there's just a ton of losses behind them and they just kind of sneak their way in but they look awful they look real bad and tony elliott uh whose name circled around a lot of head coaching jobs in the offseason now looking um really sketchy in the light and i don't know how much of that is necessarily his fault or the fault of a quarterback that is certainly not firing on all cylinders and not looking comfortable within the offense um but there's problems in Death Valley, and they're running out of time to fix them because the opponents, while they don't get, you know, ever in the ACC get to the level of world beater, become certainly much more difficult than the likes of Georgia Tech. So that's obviously something they're going to try to work out. I'm not so sure how quick the turnaround is and, and how quickly that offense can have a metamorphosis into something that looks more like what we're used to seeing out of Clemson. Um, but right now they just look disjointed. Yeah, and I mean, listen, it's, uh, you know, I don't know if it's Tony Elliott being exposed, but you've kind of got that Urban Meyer type of perception of, oh, this is like playing Alabama every week. Well, welcome to the NFL, Urban. Like, what? I'm sorry it's hard for you now because you can't just go get whatever five-star player you want to get now. You're going to actually have to coach, and I think that's what we're seeing out of the Clemson offense right now. It's easy to win when you can literally just pick talented player after talented player. Trevor Lawrence, the dude, the, the next Peyton Manning, the next Andrew Luck, right? Yeah. I'm sorry, like he's he clearly hit a lot of issues within that Clemson offense. And I'm not saying Tony Elliott's not going to figure it out, but a little bit of adversity. And you put up 14 against Georgia Tech, are you kidding me? Yeah, and you always kind of kind of put a side eye toward results like this when you have a co-offensive coordinator sort of situation that Tony found himself in for a long time um, with, I believe it was Jeff Scott, who is now at Southern Florida. I hope I'm getting that right. Um, you have one co-offensive coordinator leave, another takes the reins, and, you know, I'm not saying that's the reason, but it makes you think. So that was ACC Week 3. Let's jump into the Richmond preview, and not a super long preview this week, um, which is good because we took up a lot of time there, you know, complaining about 
country roads and whatnot. But the old Spiders, they're 2-1. and one. They're ranked 24th in the FCS. Uh, they're coming off a loss to Villanova, who's ranked 11th in the FCS. They lost that game 34-27 after being up uh, big and then just got kind of their doors blown off there in the, uh, the latter part of the game. But this will be the biggest opponent they play all season, there's no doubt. So a lot of guys from the state of Virginia on the roster, you'd have to imagine they're going to come out, give Virginia Tech their best shot. Overall, Richmond, solid football team. Fairly large football team at the FCS level. Everybody's talking about how big they are. They only have one offensive lineman under 300 pounds. He's 290. They've got an experienced offense. They've got some FBS transfers on there. The offense has been average. You know, They only had 79 yards rushing against Villanova. Um, they did put up over 500 yards against Howard, but Howard is really kind of a low-level FCS opponent. Right. Defensively, you know, Fuente calls their D-line ACC caliber, says they Ugh. have four or five guys that could play for Virginia Tech, which, you know, if that is the actual case, maybe just mute yourself. Right. Let's let, let's not say that out loud. Right. It's Richmond. Okay. So, again, they do have size. They may actually be bigger than Tech at certain areas, but size doesn't mean anything. Just interesting to look at on paper, okay? They're giving up 350 yards per game. They had, like I said, dominant performances against Howard, Lehigh, um, held strong against Nova until the second half where they got just gashed. Um, you know, I think it was something like their last three drives against Villanova defensively accounts for like almost 80% of the yards they've given up all season. So pretty bad. But still a pretty solid FCS opponent. And so what we've seen at FCS and FBS this year is four FCS schools have beaten Power 5 programs already this year, most notably Washington against Montana and then Florida State against Jacksonville State. So any FCS team can come in and win. Those were bad. Montana's typically solid. Jacksonville State's bad. But... There's been 10 FCS teams that have beaten FBS programs already this year. So it seems like the gap is narrowing a bit. So just like any other game, Virginia Tech needs to be cognizant, needs to be kind of aware. Again, this is Richmond, a lot of Virginia talent. You would have to imagine, Tim, that stadium's not going to be 100% capacity, but then you kind of think about, well, Richmond's got a very Virginia-focused roster, Maybe there's going to be a bunch of people there for Richmond kind of supporting, or maybe they have a neutral rooting interest that they're a Virginia Tech fan but know somebody on the Richmond team. I don't know how much of that will go on, just something I was thinking about. So the stadium may be more full than it would traditionally be for an FCS opponent. But, um, you know, what are your initial thoughts on the old Richmond Spiders? Well, I, I think for one, I think the crowd will be fairly sparse just because of how disappointing last weekend was. Um, and Richmond just given the size of the school while they are Virginia focused, I, I'm not so sure how, how much that'll matter. Um, but, but my take is that, yeah, Richmond is a solid FCS program coming in against a team with a sputtering offense that can't find consistency that has a myriad of issues when it comes to not only coaching, um, but abilities to come out and start games strong. I'm certainly not calling the upset here, uh, 
but this could be a lot closer than people think, um, at least looking at this on paper and, and what you think when you hear, oh, Richmond versus Virginia Tech. Um, it's, it's, it's not obviously a, a, what I would call a trap game, but I certainly don't expect it to be easy. And unfortunately, we really need the offense to come out and have a good showing and go up and down the field and show that you can pass for more than 300 yards. And Richmond is the team that you kind of want to shake those cobwebs off against. And I'm just running out of hope, I think, that we're going to see this offense blossom in a game where I think they really need it. Yeah, and I mean, I think um, that's one of the keys to the game, right? It's get right offensively. So. Yeah. I think the biggest thing we should be looking for is an efficient game offensively. I don't think we're going to see a lot of creativity, um, one, because we never do, and two, because it's uh, it's Richmond, right? So we should see a game plan similar to Middle Tennessee. I think they're going to want to try and keep Burmeister upright for most of the game, uh, limit the contact. I don't think we're going to see a lot of designed runs for Burmeister um, out of the pocket. Um, they're probably going to look to – Pound the pound the ball up the middle. Try to run the run the ball. Control the clock. Um, you know, I, I'm not expecting a lot of creativity from the offensive game plan this week, but um, I do want to see an efficient game plan. I do want to see them move the ball. I don't want to see a lot of punts. Um, and you know, the other thing I want to watch for here is is. Burmeister healthy, you know. There's there's been some murmurs about his shoulder. Uh, he seemed to be kind of working it quite a bit during the West Virginia game, but I think that's just some, kind of something else to monitor there. So get right offensively. The other thing is Tim, and we had this after the North Carolina game, but be a goldfish. You know, big emotional loss last week against West Virginia. It's obviously been a roller coaster of a September. You know listening to how great you've been to now more negativity, not really focused at the team, but focused at um, more of the coaching staff. But tough loss. You got to be able to put that behind you. A lot of attention's been on the, you know, red zone play calling, how you're going to perform there. You know, just forget about last week. It happened. It's over. You got to move on. You got to address it in practice. And then you got to go out and you got to execute on game day. (laughs) <laughs> in the red zone, not just from a play standpoint, but from a coaching standpoint. So, if you're um, if you're VT at this point, you can't you can't afford a loss to an FCS team. Sure can't. That would that would that would be the end of the Fuente era. Um, yep. But uh, you know, Richmond is a solid FCS team, so you got to kind of be on your heels a little bit. But this would be a colossal failure if they were to to drop it. So I'm not expecting that to happen, but you know you got to come out mentally right in order to uh, compete for four quarters. Yeah, you really do. you you gotta, you got to come out with the right mindset and not play down to the level of your opponent, which a lot of teams struggle with going on in, in these FCS, FBS matchups where, uh, you know, obviously the FCS team or the FBS team in this case expects to cruise. They hit a little adversity, and then by the time they realize it's time to pick it up and start playing – uh, they find themselves in a tight football game, and, and the score lines reflect uh, uh, maybe a much tighter game than was anticipated. And that's going to be the temptation here. I mean, it's twofold. You've got that side of it. You've also got the side of a potentially demoralized team, which um, 
losses like the last loss against West Virginia can have lasting impacts on a team for not just one week, but multiple weeks. And so we'll find out mentally, I think, where the team is after suffering a defeat that was a tough pill to swallow, to say the least. Um, so I think that just speaks to, you know, your point, which was obviously be a goldfish. Let it go if you can and try to have it not affect uh, the present. So we'll see if they're able to do that. Yeah, the last thing is just, you know, get your get your starters off the field. <clears throat> you know, do enough in the game to move in your second teamers, get some guys some reps, and, you know, see what they got. I'd love to see Jaden Payute in this game yes. play with the first team. I'd love to see Dwayne Lofton out there. I'd love to see Marco Lee and Malachi Thomas and or Kashawn King. Give me some Knox Tatum. Give me some Connor Blumrick. Like, those are the guys I want to see in this game. And <clears throat> whether they're mixed in uh, early on or, or what it is, I mean, that's kind of why you've got an FCS opponent on the schedule. And as Wente said, this team isn't designed to blow anybody out. And, you know, depends on how you define a blowout. If Virginia Tech doesn't win by more than four touchdowns, I'm going to be frustrated. I'm, I'm just being honest. Yeah. I, I, um, I totally agree. This this game needs to not be close. It needs to be on cruise control. And we need to see some semblance of an offense that knows what they're doing. I, I expect that the team is fully capable of checking all of those boxes. Um, but, you know, obviously you don't know until you go out there and play the game. But this is not a team that you can come out and have another sleepwalking game against because – You've got a restless fan base, an unhappy fan base, and a team that needs a shot in the arm from a confidence standpoint after taking you know one on the chin in a rivalry game. Um, so this is a big time get get right game, and uh, you know it's important that we get right. Yeah, and I'd love to see you know continued success at special teams outside of the kicking game. I'd love to see some success at the kicking game, um, but specifically. You know, our kickoff return and punt return teams have been really solid. So um would love to see a special team touchdown, whether it's a block punt or a kickoff return, punt return for a touchdown. Love to see a defensive score out there. Defense has been playing well. So, you know, I think defensively, like this offense, the Richmond offense is going to really, really struggle to move the football. I don't see Richmond scoring a whole lot of points. I just, I, I just don't see a path to that unless – Virginia Tech's second team gets on the field pretty early on, and uh, you know they're they're able to move the ball against that second third team unit. But what's uh, what's your score prediction, Tim, for this one? Um, you know, I I think I do feel like this game is going to be maybe tighter than it should be, just because of everything that's working against us right now from lack of offensive consistency, kind of uh, you know still still working work in progress in the quarterback front. Um, so I'm not so sure that I see it being the blowout that I really think it should be when you look at the talent on paper. Score line of maybe 31 to 14, 31 to 10, something along those lines feels right to me. I feel like 31 is kind of right for what I expect to see from the offense. Now, do I think it should be more in theory? Yes, but what do I expect to see? Um, let's go with 31 to 10. Yeah, I've got 41-6 because um, that's what I expect and that's what it should be. 
Um, it should really be more than 41, if we're being honest with ourselves, but um, we haven't really scored more than 45 points in a few years, I don't believe. So um, I think that low 40 range is right. I don't think Richmond's going to be able to move the ball very well, so 41-6 is my prediction. But let's move into our doing line segment, Tim. The rest of the ACC, some big games. Uh, just to recap here. We went three and five last week, both of us. I'm fifteen and nine. You're the inverse of that. Thanks, man. I'm gonna need you to step it up this week, okay? I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to continue continue my uh, poor performances and just be consistent because I think that's all you can ask for in life is just yeah. are you if showing you're up? Suck, are you just being do consistent it all the time? Yeah, right. Just be about it, and I'm going to be about right. it. So Wake Forest at UVA that kicks off Friday night. Virginia is a three-and-a-half-point favorite. Should be a really good quarterback matchup with Hartman and Armstrong. Uh, I'm going to expect a lot of points to be scored in this game. If you like defense, <laughs> is this correct. is probably not the game for you to watch. Wake Forest still hasn't really played a good team. They beat FSU, dumpster fire. And their other wins are Old Dominion and Norfolk State. UVA, obviously a little more battle-tested here, but I worry their defense is not very good, and they're just very one-dimensional on offense. So if you can start to slow down Armstrong, they don't really have anywhere to go offensively. Um, that being said, UVA, they've been a tough out at home over the last few years. I think they're a little more talented than Wake. Both teams are fairly well coached. I think Wake Forest is slightly better coached from top to bottom. And just like it was for UNC last week, this is a must-win for UVA. They cannot afford to go 0-2 in the conference right now, um, especially with the loss to UNC. But what do you think, Tim? What's your pick for this one? So my my pick, what I'm landing on here is Wake Forest. Uh, you know, three and a half points, at least is what I'm seeing. Uh, I'm going to take the points, take Wake Forest. Uh, you know, being having issues on defense, the last team you want to see is a team that knows what they want to accomplish on offense as well as Wake Forest does. And this, this looks like a game where they can control the clock. They can slow down the offense. I think part of what happened against UNC was both teams wanted to go fast. Both teams wanted to pass, and it ended up being a track meet. I don't necessarily see a track meet happening here from a pace standpoint, but I do think the touchdown total could get pretty high. Um, give me the team that can control the game a little better. Uh, so I'm going to go Wake Forest here, even though I totally agree. I, I think obviously Virginia's looked great on offense. Um, and if you're into watching good football games, I really do think this is going to be a good one. Yeah, I think I'm going to lean Virginia here. It's just it's one of those games where – I think it's going to be decided by more than three points. Um, yeah. Just a game like this where I think it'll stay close for a while, but it just feels like it'll probably be a 10-point win on one side or the other to me. Um, very similar to how the UVA-UNC game went last week, but um, probably not that much of a differential, but I think UVA just got a little bit more firepower um, and I expect their defense to not be as porous as it was last week, but we'll see. But I'm going to go UVA uh, to cover that 3.5 at home. They've been very good at home, too, so that's the other reason I'm kind of leaning that way. 
Liberty at Syracuse on Friday night. Uh, an hour kickoff, or an hour later kickoff than the Wake UVA game. So this is the third year in a row now that these two teams have played. Liberty is 2-0. Um, I don't recall if I said Liberty is a six-and-a-half point favorite. Who do you got? Well, you know, for me, Syracuse is just a team that's just so inconsistent on offense. And, you know, from what we've seen this year, I don't necessarily expect them to come out and blow the doors off Liberty. Um, I kind of, I hate taking favorites, especially when you just look at the optics, kind of your old tendency is to view Liberty as a team that may be a doormat um, in a lot of cases. And that's just not who Liberty's really been recently. Um, So just looking at on the surface, they really haven't had a problem uh, this year handling opponents. Although in week two against Troy, they really only won by a touchdown. Although I think, you know, a case could be made about Troy being, you know, not so bad. Um, but still, you'd like to see him score more. I just don't have any faith in Syracuse's ability to put together a consistent offense. I do have faith in Liberty to go out and put up points. So it's as simple as that for me. So I'm going to take the favorites here uh, and go with Liberty. Yeah, I'm going to go Liberty as well. I mean, the thing I'm most interested to see here is how Syracuse D holds up against projected first-round quarterback Malik Willis. Oh, yeah. Um, Syracuse has been averaging 212 yards on the ground, but really struggling through the air. Both teams have pretty stingy defenses when it comes to total yards, but uh, I think that Syracuse defense is uh, is a little bit better. But um, this game may be closer than we think, but I still think uh, Liberty is able to cover that 6.5. Let's jump over to Mizzou at Boston College. Interesting matchup here. So Mizzou comes in 2-1. Their loss is a 35-28 loss to Kentucky. Wins over Southeast Missouri State and Central Michigan. Boston College is 3-0. Wins over Colgate, UMass, Temple. Um, and obviously without quarterback Phil Dracovic, who uh, got hurt in the middle of that UMass game. So, um Interesting matchup, kind of tough to assess. How are you leaning? Mizzou is a one-and-a-half-point favorite. Oh, I mean, this is as easy as a choice gets. It's it's Mizzou, and there's no hesitation. Um, when you talk about the injury to Djokovic, that was not good. Um, you deal with a team that Eli Drinkwitz, Drinkwitz, who was former offensive coordinator at NC State under Dave Doran, has been working on building. They're not quite there yet, but there is talent on that Mizzou roster. Um, I think they've got an overall more talented roster probably than Boston College now that Dracovic is gone. So uh, give me Mizzou um, and, you know, obviously hate taking favorites, but that's where we're at on this one. I'm going to take Boston College plus one and a half. Wow. Wow. I, uh, I think Boston College overall is the better football team. They've got a really good special teams. They've got a really good offensive line. They've got a very solid defense. And they have pretty good skill position players. Now, Dennis Grossell at quarterback is a little bit of a challenge. Um, But, you know, can he be game manager enough to win this? If you look at the ESPN FPI, it gives Boston College a 70% chance to win this game. I also think Chestnut Hill, very weird place to play a football game if you've never been there before. And I can guarantee everybody on Mizzou's roster has not been to Chestnut Hill. So... 
all that to me is kind of working in favor. I think they'll figure out a way to kind of get Grossell doing more than he did last week, but um, I'm just, I just, I don't love Missouri. I don't know. So the just, I, I just, I win ACC here, home team, Boston College. I like Jeff Halfley. I like the program he's building there. It's got a very NFL vibe to it, the way that that team plays. And uh, I'm gonna go BC. UNC Georgia Tech. <laughs> UNC is a 12 and a half point favorite Tim who you got oh that's that's easy I think uh the bookies are overrating Georgia Tech's ability to stifle an offense after their performance against Clemson UNC is rolling right now um if we see the Sam Howell that has decided to be the next coming of Charlie Ward again um this becomes an easy pick for me I'm gonna take uh UNC I expect them to win by at least two touchdowns yeah, I mean, I think this line is just an overreaction to last week's game against Clemson. Um, I just don't see any way that this game is going to be within 12.5 points. You know, Georgia Tech, Jordan Yates, he's he's been pretty solid this year. I think a nice surprise um, after the Jeff Sims injury. He's been one of the more efficient passers in the ACC. Um, they need to get Jameer Gibbs going. Um you know, if they don't get him going more than they've gotten him going so far, it's just going to be a difficult year. But got to go UNC here. I think the spread is a little low. Um, just don't think Georgia Tech has the ammo to keep up. Carolina's averaging 553 yards per game. So um, that one's that. Louisville at FSU. Louisville is a one-and-a-half-point favorite on the road in Tallahassee. Coming off the nice win against UCF last season. You know, FSU showed some fight in week one against Notre Dame, but they've looked really, really bad since. 0-3, how do you see this one playing out? Again, these lines not making a lot of sense to me right now, but, uh, you know, with the way that Cunningham plays football, the way that Florida State's quarterback plays football, uh, that that gives me all I need to know here. I'm going to obviously take another favorite uh, in Louisville, but I expect them to get the win in a Florida State team that just, will probably continue its free fall uh, after next weekend. Yeah, I agree. I've got Louisville as well. I just, you know, similar situation I was in with Louisville last week. I need to see FSU win a football game before I'm going to take them right now. Uh, Kansas at Duke. Duke is a 15.5 point favorite. Big line here for the Blue Devils. Who you got? I cannot accept the fact that Duke could be a 15.5-point favorite on anyone. So by that rule of thumb, I'm going to go ahead and take the points and take Kansas, although I have watched Kansas play football this year, and they are bad, Um, real bad, (laughs) especially when you consider the quarterback position. Um, (laughs) They've struggled. Uh, Baylor absolutely just drubbed them last week, 45-7. to Scoring points has been extremely difficult for them. Um, Coastal Carolina stomped them, and South Dakota held them to 17 points in a game that they had to drive at the end to win. Um, I believe it was their first win in two or three years. We're talking about Kansas here. Uh, But there's just something I can't trust about Duke to do what Duke, in theory, should do in this game. So, therefore, I'm going to take the points and take Kansas and immediately regret it on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe you picked Duke to beat Northwestern and got it right. And now you're taking Kansas? I mean, Kansas is averaging 15 points per game, Tim. I expect Kansas to lose by two touchdowns. 
they're only averaging 15 points per game. Yeah, no, I, I hear you. It's absolutely idiotic. I don't know Their why. Their fans I do these rush things. the field after a win against South Dakota. They well, rush just the field. wait. Just wait until they get the news out of Durham that they've only lost by two touchdowns a deep. Yeah. Because that's so, what's going to happen. Things are obviously very bad in Lawrence right now. I'm going Duke. I think that's a lock. I, I honestly had it written down that you were picking Duke. I had to delete it. That's how shocked I was by, by your pick there. <laughs> No, man, I'm telling you, Duke's going to come out and duke it up. Just watch. Uh, Clemson at NC State. Clemson Oof. is a nine-and-a-half-point favorite. This is the game of the week in the ACC. Um, line is much lower than probably initially anticipated, I'd say because of the terrible offensive output that Clemson has had this, this year. Both teams are 2-1. and one. Clemson's lost to Georgia, NC State to Mississippi State. NC State, a team that tries to run the football, usually has success outside of the Mississippi State game. Both teams have really good defenses, giving up about 260 yards per game. I see this as being a low-scoring affair, Tim. The team that makes the fewest mistakes will likely win. How are you leaning on this one? Carter Finley is going to be amped for this game. Um, Poor performance against Mississippi State. Let a bunch of people down. Didn't perform up to expectations. Now, they've lost Fagan and they've lost Peyton Wilson, who were two absolutely huge cogs in that defense that has performed so well this year. However, NC State is due to beat Clemson in the Textile Bowl. They're due. They've come close a couple times against some really good Clemson teams. This is one of the better versions of NC State I think we are going to have seen over the past 10 years. Um you know, obviously understanding that Mississippi State was a huge letdown. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I'm going to take NC State, and I think they're going to win the football game. Yeah, I'm taking NC State outright as well. I'm going to put some money on the money line on this one because I am not a believer in the way Clemson is playing football right now. They've only got 17 points against FBS defenses, 4.8 yards per play. That's last in the ACC, 107th in the FBS. Both teams dealing with some attrition. NC State obviously lost Peyton Wilson, their safety, Cyrus Fagan. Clemson lost defensive tackle Tyler Davis to a torn bicep. Their starting running back coming into the season, Lynn J. Dixon, he's out. He's transferring. Gone. So Clemson is definitely on upset alert. They can't move the football. Now, the one strength is a big one, their defense. National championship caliber defense. There is no doubt about it. So that 100%. is going to be the toughest part of the game for NC State. They cannot afford to make mistakes. Now, I'm hesitant with NC State because of how they played against Mississippi State. I mean, if you want to talk about laying an egg, they did it. They were basically the Easter Bunny that day. It was bad. Okay? but <laughs> The Easter Bunny lays eggs now? Well, he's going to pick them up. Okay? <laughs> I know what you're saying. I'm just messing with you. You, Funny the Easter, image, the Easter Bunny lays the eggs in a basket. There you go. Oh, hey. So, you know what? Accurate. That fits with the Easter lore that I have built in my head. So we'll yeah, go with that. Exactly. But I'm just not a believer in Clemson this year. I don't think they're very good offensively. I think it's, I think it's naive to think that you're going to score 14 points against Georgia Tech and then you're just going to come in against a better defensive team in NC State on the road, and you're just going to auto- automatically find your offense, I just don't see it happening. 
You've scored 17 points so far this year against an FBS defense. I still like Clemson. I still think they're going to win some games this year. I just don't think they're a playoff team. They're definitely not a playoff yep. offense, and I'm going to go NC State to win outright. Yep, I, I think you're on the right side of the money there. Wild card game, Tim, what do you got? Well, wild card game, I went SEC last week, um, and, and that turned out, you know, I think it worked out for me. I think I got Florida right in that one. You did? Um, I think they yeah. kept it close enough. Florida impressed me. Yeah, so, you know, I thought about picking the Ohio State-West Virginia game, but I'm too, it's too fresh. My wounds are still uh, oozing a little bit of blood from that game. So I figured I'd go with another game that we have a connection to in Kentucky and South Carolina. Kentucky, you know, undefeated on the year, only 3-0, and obviously. Um, but you've got South Carolina, who has looked iffy, I think, to say the least. Uh, they've certainly struggled with ECU. Um, but put together two other – or one other decent win. Um, and, again, obviously playing Georgia, you can't put too much stock into that. But I see a five-point favorite in Kentucky. Um, something tells me the Shane train rolls in this game, and they get the win. So I'm going to take the five points. I'm going to take South Carolina. And, you know, I'm going to be rooting for Shane in this one, even though if you look at the, the game on paper, South Carolina is going to be the better defense. Kentucky's going to be the better offense. And let's just hope defense rules the day in Columbia. Yeah, I almost took that game, but I was going to go Kentucky. Uh, Shane Beamer, an all-time quote against Georgia, or after the Georgia game with the uh, – they've got like 105 stars on defense. So if you haven't seen that, go to the Chowder and Grits timeline on Twitter. Check it out. Very, very humorous. Uh, there were a couple SEC lines that I liked. Um, Tennessee, 18.5 point uh, underdog at Florida. I was going to take Florida. But I'm actually going to go Michigan State, minus four and a half at home over Nebraska. You know, you look at what they've got going on on offense there. Kenneth Walker, who, getting some Heisman consideration, has had a very, very strong year for the the Spartans. You know, Peyton Thorne has looked really good through four touchdowns against Miami. They obviously coming off the 38-17 win over Miami. Um, Miami isn't great, but they're way better than Nebraska, in my opinion. So I'm going to take Sparta, minus four and a half, in East Lansing over Scott Frost's Nebraska Cornhuskers for at least a few more weeks anyway. That seems like a weird line to me. I mean, I, so, I think you're on the right it, side of it. Doesn't but it? It's, it's just like, that I, Nebraska? I, honestly, I typed in Michigan State football to see if there was like some kind of COVID outbreak. Yeah, because I was like minus four and a half at home. Yeah, a, a well-coached Michigan State team right. against a uh, questionably coached and dysfunctional Nebraska team. Right, and um, I mean you can find these weird lines in college, and a lot of times they'll pay off. The NFL isn't—it's it, not been kind to me this year. Let's put it that good way. Good luck. I much prefer the college game, even though. My record on this show from the picks we make says that I uh, I shouldn't like the college game. I have, uh, for whatever reason, much better luck um, with the other picks, I think, that uh, I try to stay away from the ACC when I'm involved in any sort of betting, only because the predictability in the ACC doesn't exist. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So that's our show for today. 
Tim, any uh, any final thoughts before signing off? Yeah, just what a crappy weekend. Last I mean, weekend. Le- yeah, last weekend. Yeah. Let's just hope that this weekend is much better. And we're recording this it, late, so we got to be. It can't get you know, worse. We're going into the weekend now. Yeah, I mean, it can't get worse. I feel like I shouldn't have said that. Oh, it definitely could get worse. It could um, get worse. But, you know, I don't think it will, but, you know, is what it is. So we have to uh, have to move on. It's over. It's happened. Can't can't do anything about it now. And hopefully, uh, hopefully we start to see an improved product on the field from the coaching staff. So that's our show for today. Thanks for listening. Again, we're Chowder and Grits. You can go check us out on Twitter, on Instagram. We're out there gramming, having a good time. Uh, be sure to follow along. And uh, Tim, why don't you tell these uh, these guys what they can do for us? Just leave us a five-star review if you like the show um, and you've been listening. We appreciate it. It helps us uh, get more people interested in the show, obviously, to see uh, what I think is a decent amount of ratings. I think we're up to maybe in the mid-70s as far as ratings go, and that's way more than I ever thought we would have. So the fact that we're even talking about this kind of blows my mind. Um, but we're nearing our 100th episode, so if we could maybe get 100 views, that would be pretty cool, and the synchronicity would be off the charts. So, um, yeah, if you don't mind doing that for us, uh, letting people know, and uh, you can commiserate with us on a weekly basis, and hopefully future podcasts are filled with much more cheer um, and, and you know fun and good moods. They're not all uh, this sour Uh, So hopefully you've stuck with us through the rants and are there for uh, the golden sky that will surely follow. I'd imagine a lot of you are out there with us this week. You know, we try to be fair. Oh, for sure. I think think it was a fair. fair Six years in, anything is fair game. So thanks for listening. We're Trouter and Grits. Go Hokies. Beat Richmond. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Smush the spiders. Bye.